This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. I have a special guest with me today, Alicia Stoby. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Today, uh, we're going to be speaking on the subject of parenting. In fact, we're going to be doing a three-part series on parenting your children in a technological age. So, today, as we get into this topic, we kind of wanted to take a moment to kind of do a flyby of some of the major issues, and particularly we want to look at five issues that we feel parents need to be aware of. Now, before we get started and jump right into things, I think it's probably important for people to know that you and I have some skin in the game and just to know who we are. For myself, I have been pastoring with young adults and teenagers for 20 years now, and so that that's something that pretty much my... You're that old? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so, I have a lot of experience in this, but I also have personal experience yeah. as well besides a career. Uh, I have two children. I have a, an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old. So, this is, this is my world. I, I have, I've lived it for 20 years and I'm currently uh, immersed into it. What about yourself, Alicia? Um, well, I'm a marriage and family therapist and I have a practice here in Surrey, B.C., and um, my early years, I worked with um, the RCMP, and I received referrals there from children and families who were in trouble with the law or being potentially in trouble with the law in the future. And so that brought a lot of cases to me that uh, had to do with online. And then they got a hold of some of my research from my graduate studies, and um, they saw that I was very interested in teen sexting and how the laws and the interactions online impacted teens and their families, but not only in a negative way, but how, how do families heal from this well? So then they would intentionally start to send me referrals that had to do with online uh, sexual exploitation of minors. And so from there, I've trained uh, therapists and uh, RCMP members, um, social workers, teachers, parents, churches, on parenting the online world, foster parents, and I've just delved further and further into that since 2014. And one of the things that I've noticed with you is that this has been an area of research, but this has also been an area where you've had a lot of personal contact with with people who have gone through these challenges. And, and I know that that has made this issue incredibly important to you. Well, yeah, actually, the research came out of my personal experiences. Because I was sitting with families and children and youth who interacted with these topics that we're going to talk about, you know, online predators, pornography, cyberbullying, blackmail, uh, these types of things. Because I was sitting with families who were deeply impacted, I needed to turn to research to see, you know, what, what it said. But it really was my heart here is for real people, real parents, real children, and that's where my passion 
passion really comes from. I also have two children. Uh, they're younger. They're one and three. Yeah, I'm in it too. I'm, I'm right in the swing of things. Well, and I love the fact that your children are younger. Mine are on the older you know, scale, but it helps parents who, wherever you're coming at this from, uh, they, they can, okay, they can glean from where you're at and what you're experiencing and where I'm at and what I'm experiencing. Maybe you don't even have kids yet and you're like, okay, you know, we want children and we just want to be prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this would be perfect for you, in fact. And and as we get into this, one of the things that we've talked about is the earlier that you can become aware, the earlier that you can implement your parenting strategies and, and even begin to process what your parenting strategy is going to be, the better. Mm-hmm. Now, this podcast series came about when you phoned me and said, Andy, listen, we've got to talk about this. Yeah. And as soon as you brought it up with me, I was 100% on board because I was already thinking, We've got to talk about this because there's so much going on right now with regards to parenting your kid in a technological age that is not being talked about. And it was interesting, by the way, I I recently had a conversation with an RCMP officer who works at a school. So he works at, at a high school and he and I were talking, I was saying, man, there's just, there's so much that parents need to understand about what's going on right now. And he goes, listen, I'm doing my best to educate the kids. And we want to do our best to educate you parents. We want you to know what, what's going on, what you should be aware of, what things should be of concern. And, and in some ways, I'm kind of surprised that the government doesn't put on some commercials or something kind of going, hey, you should be aware of this. But let's jump into this first one. So like I said, we're going to be looking at five-ish issues. Uh, the first one that we wanted to look at was the subject of online predators. Yeah. And this is something that you've dealt with quite a bit. You deal often with the aftermath. Yes. What are some things that parents need to know with regards to online predators? Yeah, we're going to we're going to start out with a scary one here. <laughs> online predators. <laughs> we're done, jumping right in. Jumping right in. Yeah, getting into the meat of it. You're right, Andy. I get families and children and youth who have connection with online predators. There are online predators, uh, typically adults, typically adult males, but not exclusively, that are sitting behind computers trying to get teenagers and children, um, depending on their preference. And um, so what they do is they enter into something called a grooming process. And that's typically through social media or online gaming platforms. And so let's say an online predator uh, likes children between the ages of 9 and 12. And let's say their preference is a boy. They're typically going to go to certain sites that are very vulnerable, but also scan them. Um, Can I pause you just for a second there? Yeah. Because as soon as you start talking about this, I think it's interesting that a parent you know, would never just send their eight-year-old off to a park, right? And say, hey, feel free to play at the park for the day because they get it. They understand, okay, there there are dangers mm-hmm. and it would be irresponsible parenting to just let them, let them loose yeah. in that regard. But often I think parents forget that online can be just as dangerous. Yeah, and actually I think I would take it a step further that it's more dangerous because it's so subtle. And so it's so dangerous for children because parents can't necessarily see right away, oh, that person looks creepy, oh, that person is doing something inappropriate, and children don't have the brain development, and teenagers as well, to fully assess the situation. That's such an important point. As adults, we've learned to assess the situation and what what doesn't seem quite right, and what's being asked of me that's inappropriate or or whatever, but we have to remember our kids don't understand all those social cues. Not yet, no. And even if they can feel it in their body, they don't know what to do with it. 
And so that's, uh, they're very vulnerable online for that reason, because even when they feel like this is a little bit weird, they don't know quite how to approach that or to say it to mom and dad. And so that's part of our hope here um, today and in the next two sessions is to encourage mom and dad, to encourage any guardian that's looking after children and teens to use words to say to children and teens, um, hey, this isn't okay. Hey, have you ever seen this? Have you ever felt uncomfortable? And to have a verbal plan with children around if something comes up and it feels uncomfortable, you come and you tell me, even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't know why it feels uncomfortable, I want to know. So we're talking about online predators and basically that our children are being exposed to predators online. That's the basic here. So there are a couple things. So I've been in contact with RCMP officers for my career. And the last officer that I had the pleasure of speaking with was an inspector, uh, McAndy, with the RCMP. And she was formerly a part of the online exploitation of minors and the homicide unit. And, and then she went on to be an inspector. And so in my conversation with her, she brought up some several points that she thought was very important for us to mention here. And that was the use of cameras and webcams to be able to talk to our children about, you know, the use of these cameras and filming oneself for social media purposes or putting it on Facebook or what have you. That is a very adult thing to do. And sharing videos and photos is a very quick way for predators to gain information to later use as blackmail. And so even if the photo itself isn't technically illegal because it's not a naked child, it can be used if the child feels at all ashamed of it as blackmail to gain further information. And so we really want to be paying attention to uh, how our children are engaging in webcam webcams and cameras. Here's something just to throw in there that I think is important for parents to consider, for students to consider, is what does your online presence look like? What what does your social media presence look like? Now, I know that for a younger kid, this is going to be much more tame, but the older you get, the more willing you are of putting your life online. And you need to be thinking about and talking with your kids, what, what sorts of things should you put online and what shouldn't you? One of the things that we're realizing more and more is that your online presence is becoming a resume. So on one hand, we need to be careful because there's online predators and they can use this in different ways that we're going to talk about more. Mm -hmm. But on a different perspective, but, but important, is you are beginning to put out there an online presence that's going to be used in different ways. For example, virtually all companies these days, their first stop in checking out a new application is to Facebook you, mm -hmm. is to Google your name and to see what sorts of things come up. And not only for a job, but even for an application for tenancy or university or to rent an apartment. Yeah. They're going to check out your online presence. You know, what do you have there? And I think we have to train our kids, don't we, at a much younger age to say, hey, you need to think about the way this information is going to be used. Yeah, and that's a really tough thing for kids to hold in their brains because I'm going to go into a little bit of brain anatomy here for a sec. The place in our brain, the cerebral cortex, that holds the information of when I do this, it will impact me in the future like this. So in order for them to see the future and then look back on the impacts is actually very, very low. And it's the last place to develop in the brain until, depending on the researcher, 20, 21 to 25. And so they're actually not capable of 
by themselves, looking at what they're putting online and how that might impact them in the future. Now, there's going to be a lot of teenage parents out there and being like, wait a minute, my kid is capable because of these examples. So yes, as you become teenagers and young adults, you are gaining capability. But what research says, and it's quite clear in the brain scans and relationship sociology, is that Kids and teens, when learning this, will get it in some examples. And then about an hour later, a day later, they won't be getting it because their brain is actually developing in a different area and concentrating on something else. Yesterday, when they got, when I did this, that equals that. Today, they might not actually be making those connections again. And learning is about learning it, unlearning it, making mistakes, learning it again, deepening the pathways, forgetting it, learning it again. It's not just learn it and you get it. This really applies to our online presence and our ability to make good, wise decisions about what we're posting and how that impacts us. And so all of this to say, this, I I coach my parents that come in, this needs to be an ongoing dialogue with our children because their brains are not developed enough to have one conversation and for them to fully get it and then make wise decisions ongoing until adulthood. Before we continue... A message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to the AC Podcast and to let you know that my new book, Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World, is now available for pre-order. As a special thanks for pre-ordering the book, we are giving away a special reader's guide, a free copy of the Human Project video series with a bonus video, and an invitation to join me on a Zoom call where I will be teaching on the content of the book and answering questions. To redeem these, simply email your receipt number to info at apologeticscanada.com. Pre-order your copy today. In fact, if you pre-order it, it is currently 30% off at churchsource.com or christianbook.com. Of course, it is also available on Amazon. The book ships September 1st. And now, back to the podcast. Let's just take a moment then. If we're, if we're saying, okay, this is something as parents you need to be aware of as your child gets older and, and experiences different online challenges... What are some of the major ones that, that we want to hit at a young age? What are some concerns with regards to online predators? Okay, if your kid or your child is just starting to use a device, mm-hmm. what would you want that parent to know? Yeah, that's a really great place to start. When your kid is just entering online, um, what I would want parents to know, based on my experience, is that uh, kids don't have the regulation and the uh, mental capacity to navigate the online world alone. So that means, and, and all the research and pediatric associations would agree, that young children, two to, I would say 12, should not be online without a parent present. And so, you know, when they get a little bit older, 10, 11, 12, that's the parent present in the room, not necessarily sitting next to them. But I would, under that, you're sitting next to them. You know what exactly they are engaging with online, moment to moment, platform to platform, that you know who they're chatting with, who they're talking with. You know that when they're watching Peppa Pig, what's coming up on the sides, um, that you're the one typing it in. They're not the one uh, trying to access these things. Um, That's the number one thing. And as you talk about this parenting arc, if you will, just to encourage y'all, it is about 
doing it differently throughout the different stages, but there are some really great things that follow you throughout the stages. And one of them is talking out loud to your children, regardless of their age, that this is an out loud conversation that you're going to find language together. And if at all possible, get on the same page as your partner in how you're going to navigate this, whether you're together or whether you're co-parenting to be able to have these conversations well. So that tells me that when your child first starts to begin to use technology, because listen, I, I I think parents need to hear us say this, thinking that the answer here is just to not engage in technology Mm -hmm. is in fact not the answer. We live in a technological age. And in fact, technology's always been with us. It's just changed over time. And this is just where we're at now. And so we need to help our child to begin to understand how to use these technologies in responsible ways. That's part of parenting is the fact that they're going to be on these technologies one day without you. So how are you prepping them for that day? And that's a really important point because I definitely have come across families who that's how they approach technology is they're like, it's too unsafe. It's not okay. So it's shut down in my household. Well, what happens when we don't parent the online world and uh, we don't let it in our household is that our children go outside our house and with their little friends or their big friends and they discover it on their own. And so it's very much like not having the sex talk where if you're not parenting this world, your kids are engaging in it. They're just engaging with other underdeveloped, unregulated minds in closed doors. Even if you put very strict restrictions at home, I would still very much encourage you to have an ongoing dialogue with your children, with how they engage outside or with friends or what that looks like. And that leads to this next idea that I wanted to bring up that I hear you saying that I think is important for parents to understand is that when we engage as parents in this process of parenting them in a technological age, that it keeps an open dialogue happening as your child gets older. And so all that your child knows, you know, if we parent correctly, is this open platform of technology. And I think because one of the challenges is that the kind of the default was just to, was privacy, right? And and then, you know, you had your device and you would go lock yourself in the room and, and have access to the whole web completely unparented mm-hmm. because I think there was a lot of parents who just had no idea where technology was at that time. We know a lot more now and we should be a lot better prepared. But do, but do you know what I'm saying? Where, where yes. you're you're keeping that dialogue so that your child knows, okay, this isn't something that I get to just do privately on my own and, and it's this wild west, you know, and I get to do what I want. Yeah, and, and you're bringing up a really good point. Again, something I have encountered year after year is teenagers will often say to their parents, no, I have the right to privacy. I have privacy rights. I have children's rights. Let me be clear. Children do not have rights to their devices, even if they got a job and purchased them themselves, even if they are the owner of the cell phone or the device, even if it was gifted by a co-parent, it is not the legal possession of the child. The parent or guardian who is parenting the child is in legal possession of that device. And you are legally responsible to parent the device in Canada as of May 2016. And so... Yes, children have privacy laws, and that's around changing uh, nudity and what have you. That is not about online privacy. Uh, What, in fact, we need to do is the opposite, is online transparency. And so that means 
having different policies, you know, parenting uh, in place that we're going to talk about more in the sessions to come. Things like making sure, of you, as you've already mentioned, that when a device is being used, that it's being used in a common area, for example, where people are present, that they're not using it on their own. For example, in my house, you know, devices aren't allowed in the bathroom uh, by yourself or in your bedroom by yourself. In fact, we have a, a table in our living room that that's where all devices live. It also means, though, that as a parent, and this is, I think, a tough one for a lot of parents, is you're going to need to model this. You're going to need to model what it looks like to have appropriate online behavior. And we'll talk more about that, such as, you know, should you be bringing a device to the table? Should you be using a device in the bathroom or these other things? Because you are modeling to your child what, you know, what's an appropriate way to use a device and what's not. Yeah, and, and what we're not doing here is giving a formula about how families should live with devices, but rather uh, encourage you and empower you to really think critically about your own family values, pediatric recommendations, and what it is to actually allow your children to use the device themselves. And one of the reasons that we want to make sure that we understand what's going on is something that you brought up, and I think it would be good if you just teased out a little bit more, is this idea of blackmail. Mm. Because I know that this is something in your practice that you've that you've encountered, and I think it might be surprising to parents how easy it is for their innocent child is just that's online to be blackmailed, you know, coaxed to do things that they normally would not do. That you can't even imagine that they would do, and they wouldn't do it outside of blackmail. So let me explain blackmail a little bit. It's illegal in Canada, and it's when one party uses information to get the second party to do things for them, and the information would harm them in some way, whether that be physically harm them or financially harm them, emotionally harm them. This is one of the the most common tactics both kids and teens use against one another. And it is one of the most common tactics that predators use against children. And children are very susceptible to blackmail because they don't see it coming. They don't see the flags up until blackmail, and then they don't know what to do with it. Children and teens specifically who have a hard time making social connections and who uh, experience depression, uh, are even more susceptible to blackmail because they are constantly looking to be received and loved and connected with. And if they get that online with another person, even if they've never seen their face or they don't actually know who the other person is, they will do things to keep that relationship. And then the predator uses that against them. So for example, I might give a client example that years ago, and they've given me permission uh, to say this story, but I saw a girl, she was about 12 at the time, when she was engaging with, I think it was a chat room, and she met someone online, and she thought that the person was about her age, maybe a year older, and it was a, it was a male. She was having a hard time making connections. Her parents had recently separated, so she was looking for consistency, friendship, and uh, so she made a connection, and the person online said, oh, I'll be your boyfriend, and so they thought it was very innocent. She did some webcam situations where she took off her shirt and it wasn't full nudity and then the the person on the other side took pictures of that and videoed it um, for their own use the child was unaware that that someone could do that and so the person then used that experience the pictures and the the webcam to then 
tell her that she needs to do more, that she needs to give more content. And if she didn't, then this person would contact her parents. And it turns out after a year of this, her parents thought, whoa, my goodness, like her grades are dropping. She's gaining a bunch of weight. She won't talk to us. Like, you know, 12, 13, is this just hormones? Like, is this just her being a teenager? And it came out after seeing uh, me that she had been blackmailed for over a year. She was in depression and numbing. It started to become normal for her. And eventually she disclosed that it got so bad and she was so ashamed that this person who, who was actually an adult male uh, living in the New West Territories, he had said that he was hiding outside of the bushes, that he was going to murder her mother if she didn't produce this content. And he actually called the landline to let her know that he knew where she lived, etc. And um, they caught the guy. You know, that's a a difficult scenario. Uh, the inspector would say the worst case scenario is is if they actually meet up. That's the difficult scenario. I mean, they're all difficult, but that's the very scary scenario is when your child agrees to meet another child, uh, not necessarily a child. So, so the point being that it's, it's going to escalate and it's quite interesting that it starts quite innocent. Very innocent. And the child believes that it's, that it's just another kid on the other end. And that can happen through gaming. So you're playing a game and you're meeting someone online. That can happen through chat rooms. That can happen through Instagram, through Facebook. There's so many ways that these very innocent connections start and then they they roll into something uh, very dangerous. So what we've been talking about thus far is online predators. I'm sure there's more that we could talk about there, and and we'll circle back on it, I'm sure. But I want to move on to the second one that we want to let parents know about. Now, this one uh, is something that... What we've been talking about with online predators tends to be younger, although I'm sure it can you know, happen older. But the one that we want to talk about next is a little, something that happens a little bit older, and that's sexting. Yeah. And I think it would be surprising to a lot of parents how prolific this can be. Yes. Many parents um, and family of the like will say, well, my kid isn't doing that. And let me tell you that um, many families are... Uh, surprised that their child is either producing or distributing sexting. So sexting is sex and texting combined, and that can be, it's a little bit misleading, that can be over text message or it can be over Skype. If it's video or text of a nude or semi-nude photo of a minor, so anyone under the age of 18, that's a sexting, okay? And that's illegal, it's child pornography, and children engage with this on all sorts of levels. And so many parents, I want to encourage you that if you don't believe that your child is engaging in sexting, um, they might not be. They might not be taking pictures and videos of themselves and giving it to someone else, whether that be a boyfriend or a girlfriend, hey, check out this, whatever, pose. It is very likely that your child has received a text because what happens is the child uh, forwards it to a friend or a boyfriend, and then that person actually forwards it to a network. Usually when they forward it, it's not actually to one other person, it's to many people or all their contacts. And so then your child is sitting in their bedroom and receiving these WhatsApp or Instagram messages or even text messages, and mm-hmm. they did not ask for it. But or they're Snapchat. Now, or, or Snapchat, yeah. But now they're in possession of it. And we need to talk about that. On the one hand, you know, we need to talk about this 
because of the dangers implicit in it with regards to your child or that other child. But there is something that's happening here that parents tend to be even more unaware of. And this is more of a long-term danger. And that is that this is illegal, as you mentioned, that this is under the law. And and you and I have both seen this play out. This is considered child pornography and distribution Mm -hmm. of child pornography. And one of the things that I'm surprised that we don't talk enough with our children about is how easy it is to get a criminal record, especially Mm -hmm. with this, Mm -hmm. and that that this has huge implications. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, for example, a lot of children don't know, or teenagers or young adults are completely unaware that if you have a criminal record, there are jobs that you can't get, that you can't get a passport. You can't travel. There's a lot of major implications Mm -hmm. to this besides, you know, and of course we need to talk about the emotional, psychological, you know, damage that takes place here. But but there are also lifelong challenges that play out because of this. So let's let's just talk about that for a moment. So in in Canadian law, when you get a, you know, criminal record, if you're a minor, a lot of the times it won't transfer to being an adult uh, record, but it will limit you for the time, and if you have multiple offenses, then it does it can carry into being adulthood. Well, it's interesting. On that note, uh, I'll just throw out an example here. Uh, we one time uh, had a speaker come to speak at one of our conferences, and he was stopped at the border. And, and he was refused entry into the border because when he was 11, he had been caught stealing. He had stolen, like, I don't know, like a pack of gum or something at the store. And that was still on his record. Yeah. So, it's not it's not uh, totally clear, you know, for every case for sure. And we do need to be teaching our children, you know, what a criminal record is, especially if they're engaging in activities that would uh, give you a criminal record, because it does have very practical implications. Very, very practical. Like, when you're getting your first job and you're filling out your application, whether that be online or in person, and let's say it's for McDonald's, you have to check the box if you've ever had a criminal record. And that is very, very hard for children to overcome sometimes. Um, yeah. And there, like you say, there's also psychological, social, personal implications of this. And there are cases in Canada and actually all over the world where children have gone to jail for this because it is production and distribution of child pornography, and the law takes that very seriously, as they should. Now, let, let me just play out a scenario then. If a friend texts somebody an image that they have of somebody at their school, for example, uh, a, a sexting image, right? And then they share that with a bunch of friends. Mm-hmm. How's the law going to consider that? Possession of child pornography. So even if your child or yourself, any devices, receives a nude or semi-nude image of someone under the age of 18, that is possession of child pornography. And so what we need to be doing is talking to our kids about distribution possession of child pornography creation and what to do about that. And so I've had many consultations with schools and RCMP officers and of the like. And so this is what they recommend across the board. This is what I train uh, principals and school counselors on. If your child, if you receive a sexually explicit image of a child under the age of 18, or you're not sure where they're on, delete it. Delete it. If you receive it again, go to the police. I would highly recommend that when your child receives an image, that they text back with you very clearly, do not ever forward me an image like this again. I have saved your contact information. And if you do this again, I will bring this to the police because often it's not a one-time thing. 
And then if it does happen again, bring the device to the police do not delete the image. Please don't view it. If a child comes up to you and says, oh, I have an image, uh, you know, I don't want this on my phone, don't view it. That's viewing child pornography. Just close the phone, bring it to the police, and they will follow up with it. And it does sound really minor sometimes, like, oh, you know, just delete it. Um, but this typically can be very good information for the police. And all the inspectors and, and officers have said to me that they would much rather parents just come to their community police office and talk to them about you know their concerns or what's happening and get advice on it than, than to ignore it or pretend that it's smaller than it is. They would much rather it be nothing and you approach them than for it to be something and for you not to said anything. I think this is a good time to transition into the third one that we want to talk about. And sometimes I, I think that these can be related with sexting and what we want to move into next being cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. So what is cyberbullying and what do you feel that parents need to be aware of? Well, bullying is bullying and there's been lots of social culture conversation around bullying, anti-bullying days. Cyberbullying is just bullying online. What we're finding, uh, you know, mental health clinicians who are working with youth and children uh, is that they bring their bullying online and it's not being parented often. And so we need to be teaching our children, if we wouldn't say it out loud, if we wouldn't say it with mom or dad in the room, then it's not okay. And so a lot of children, and you've touched on this before, a lot of children, and when I say children, I mean 17 and under, a lot of teenagers <laughs> believe that if they have put something online, that it's anonymous. And that it's somehow different than if you say it or do it in person. And that is a phenomenon because of their biology and their lack of development. But that's something that we need to explicitly be saying to our youth and children that if it's not okay in person, it's not okay online. There's so many things to be said about this. Right now, there's a lot of cultural conversation taking place over just the subject of dehumanization in general mm -hmm. and how prolific it is online and how easy it is to do, particularly online as you mentioned when you know, would you say this you know in front of you know your mom or dad or if somebody else was in the room or if you saw this person you know face to face but we tend online to have different terminology where we won't even call it you know cyberbullying or bullying we'll call it trolling for example or these other sorts of terms that we have that they don't have those same connotations to it but yet in fact are the the same thing and one of the things that i think that not only teenagers but adults and just humans in general, find it very easy to demean and to abuse other people online because it's very easy to type out whatever you want and just to press send. And there's a good biological reason for it. And I'm going to give a quick example here that when I'm looking at you and I'm in the presence of you, my full body and face and mind is receiving you. And that's not just a brain thing, that's micro movements in our face that my eyes are trained to pick up on called empathy. And it's my respiratory system, so it's my breathing and heart rate, it's my fight-flight-freeze system that's actually mirroring, if you will, yours. And so I kind of know where you are physiologically at because I have a mirror neuron process happening. And so there is a flow and a receive. I impact you and you impact me. So you then can witness the words you say land yes. on me. And I to you. And then this will definitely change the timber of our conversation. 
and the words that we'll use. How we use it, what we would say, and um, our courage levels. Also, Andy, our ability to read how it lands. So if we put a screen in between us, my body is now no longer picking up all of that information. Mm-hmm. And most often, I don't even get to see your face. And even if I do, it's much harder to read these subtle signs online. So I'm actually not as a fully developed adult trained to read people for a living, cannot do that well, never mind children behind a screen. So what we end up doing is exactly what you say. We dehumanize you. You're now just a name or an image of who you actually are and how I impact you, what I say. So why don't you just go kill yourself? Lands very, very differently than if I'm actually saying that to a human being. And yet the words don't necessarily land differently to the receiver. Okay, And so there's this very dehumanizing conversation going on, one way, if you will, back and forth, that is not accounting for humanity. Now, there's this beautiful study of children actually losing their ability to read empathy in real life if they're engaging with screens too much online. And so what they're finding is that children who are having these conversations a lot online through the screen is when they are turning towards in real life real people... They no longer can read your facial features. They can no longer read what that actually emotionally means or what happy means or sad or confused or frustrated. And these children are growing up with a lack of ability to read one another's facial expressions. And that's huge because it's actually an underdevelopment of the brain, which they've scanned and is consistent and has huge impacts long-term. Finding a spouse being in an interview. If you can't read these common cues of another human being, you actually feel an increasing anxiety and a panic, if you will, because you don't know how to navigate social interactions. And this is something we're going to talk more about in later sessions. We're going to get more into the psychology of what's going on and and why it would be good to limit screen time and the like, because these implications that you might not even think about, that it's affecting your, your social skills. With regards to the dehumanizing aspect mm-hmm. that's taking place, you know, I guess in some ways, you know, that's a dehumanizing aspect that's taking place to you by too much screen time. Yes. But with regards to your interactions with another person online, as a parent, we need to take a very proactive approach into helping our child understand that that's not just a screen. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, there's a lot of parents that we need to parent ourselves with regards to that. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you the number of times I've written an email and I'm like, okay, I got way too quickly to the point. I need to start a lot nicer. You know, hi, how are you? You know, I hope you've had a great day. Okay, now into business. You know what I mean? But it's one of those moments where it could be so easy just to even have mechanized interactions with each other with regards to something like cyberbullying. You know, we need to help our children understand, hey, you're talking to another human being on the other end. This is impacting them. And, And I mean, in some ways, I think it's really easy to do this, even if it's such as with video gaming, 
but particularly you see this with social media. I find that a lot of girls in particular that tend to struggle with this um, because I see a lot of shaming that takes place online uh, with regards to girls. Yeah, um, girls are growing up in this culture and it has been for a long time that your image is essentially your worth. And those two things, the identity and worth uh, through your image is so closely connected. And so when we give them platforms like Instagram or Facebook or you know taking pictures of yourself, there's this huge comparative world going on of outward beauty. And these children are not only developing physically, but they're developing key identity formation, especially around, you know, 12, 13, 14 to 17. And that's for boys and girls that they're, this is the key time when they're trying to figure out who they are and their worth and value in the world. And that's oftentimes when we hand them a device and which allows them to compare themselves to literally models who do this for a living and have teams behind them. Mm-hmm. And so what they end up doing is their social gatherings, their, their social um, situations mirror our culture and nitpick at one another and their worth. The plastic surgery that is occurring younger and younger since social media is no wonder. They're very closely connected, both for adults actually, but also for children, that they're wanting to alter their looks because it's so closely connected to identity and this cyber bullying culture that's going on. But then you could imagine how damaging this would be if your child takes a picture and posts it on Instagram or something like that. And then somebody writes uh, a demeaning comment. Or you see this on YouTube all the time. YouTube comments can can just be absolutely brutal. Mm -hmm. So your child posts a video and then the comments just come. And it's no surprise, isn't it, that kids deal with so much anxiety and depression? It's actually very clearly correlated that the anxiety that's being experienced in children these days is the highest recorded in history. And that actually mirrors the trajectory of personal devices. And when we're talking about these comments of YouTube's online, I mean, all we have to do is look at the most professional speakers. I mean, one of them comes to mind, Brené Brown. She's a researcher. She She's, uh, you know, very popular. Uh, she has lots of books. Uh, and she speaks on TED Talks, etc. She doesn't even look at her comments because she cannot have that experience again of cyberbullying. And this is a full-on professional adult. Well, and I'm the same way. I don't look at any of my comments any either. And I had a, I had an instance where I got a lot of negative uh, attacks mm-hmm. online. Uh, I, to this day, haven't looked at it. I, I, I even wrote about it in my book that's coming out, but I didn't actually read it. As my editor read it for me. Good for you. And, and she made comments and, uh, and whatnot. But I'm like, you know, I just, it is not healthy for your soul to get into that, let alone your poor child trying to navigate that. And I think that we just need to be aware as parents uh, that this is going on and how damaging it can be. I can tell you this, from my 20 years of working with teens and young adults, wow, have I seen anxiety and depression skyrocket. Yeah. Uh, now, that's a, we could talk a whole session. It's a different podcast. Yeah, ju- <laughs> just on that subject. Now, now, I said that there were five-ish issues that we wanted to get at. And that's because the fifth one it deals with legal implications. So as you've seen, we've threaded that the whole way through here. There's legal implications with each of these. Now, we have one more that we want to get to, but before we do, what are some legal implications with regards to cyberbullying and just some tips of what parents could do if their child is experiencing this? Yeah, so there's there's like the two ends here. One is if your child is receiving the cyberbullying. The other is if they are 
producing the cyberbullying. Both need to be addressed. And I want to encourage you, not addressed, addressed in a criminalized way, but addressed as in just purely parenting, that children are trying to find their voice, trying to find their space in, in society, trying to find who they are, and they're going to make blunders. And we all do. And, you know, we had the privilege of doing that in our cul-de-sacs um, or on the sports field. And a lot of these children are now doing it online where they can't delete it. They pressed enter and, oh my goodness, the ramifications. And to stand in the gaps with our children and to teach them, well, this isn't about punishing. This is about teaching the impacts and appropriateness on this. Legally, what we want to be doing is paying attention to how to get these things offline. Um, you know, when our child is being cyber bullied, uh, not their bully is not any no longer on the bus or on the playground, but they are in their pockets. And so what we want to be doing is taking down this content and protecting our children from constantly being pursued in this way. There's a great uh, website, cybertip.ca, that I would recommend that you go to. They will help you remove these images. They will help you with the legal implications. Um, they will help you understand kind of your rights if this if this is a perpetuating thing in your child's life for the law to get involved, go to the RCMP, ask for a restraining order if it gets to that. Again, I'm a marriage and family therapist, so that's the level that I sit with, is there's restraining orders. There's restraining orders on parents and on children. Uh, it does get to this level if it isn't stopped. Start by having these conversations. Start by talking very seriously to your children about this, and then uh, hopefully it just won't get to that point. Now, would you also encourage them that if cyberbullying is taking place, place and that these are people at their school, for example, that they should get the principal involved, for example. Uh, at what level do you get the RCMP involved? That's a good point. Don't just jump to the RCMP. Um, if it's perpetuating and they're not stopping, then yes, for sure. If it's crossed any legal lines, yes, for sure. You know, let's parent. Let's first parent. And so I would encourage parents, if it's amicable enough, to contact the other parents, uh, regardless of the age of your child. Maybe your child was the one doing the bullying and, and your child needs to apologize. That's right. That's right. Whether you're being your child's being the one bullied or uh, your child is being the bully, that this is a parenting issue issue. And if you can work this out at a parenting level, I often encourage um, the children who have been the bullies to sit with me in empathy and reflect on what it was like to picture the child's face that they said these things to, and maybe even read some of the things that they've said, picturing their face and getting them into a place of what it would be like for them if someone did that to them. And then maybe, you know, drawing them a picture if they're young or writing them an apology letter physically, not not online, because it feels uh, much more personal when you receive a personal uh, physical letter. But to bridge the gap, to have apology, repair is what we call it in my field, to teach our children to repair and to apologize is where we really do want to start. If the parents do not engage, if it continues, I would get the school counselor, the school principal or vice principal involved to let them know, to create parameters around this, because what we don't want to do is not take this seriously because it does impact our children and it impacts their mental health in very, very big ways. So we need to take this seriously and we need to protect our children. So this last one that we want to address, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, yeah. but in the next uh, podcast to come, we're going to go much deeper into this issue and 
tackle it much more thoroughly. But we need to talk about the the subject, the last subject of pornography, Mm -hmm. because this is something that uh, our children need to be protected from. You know, we've been talking about the the pornography where the child could be potentially producing that pornography, so we need to be aware of that. But we need to be aware of the addiction level and the, the psychological aspects of what's taking place when your child is consuming pornography and being aware of how prolific it is online and needing to help them with this. You know, and, and it reminds me of a story, Alicia, that I'll never forget. As a pastor, I once had a guy walk in off the street. He, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't attend our church. He was just so desperate for help. He just came to the church and said, can I talk with you? And he sat in my office and with tears in his eyes, he begged me for help with his pornography addiction. And just said, will, will you please help me? Because it had absolutely taken over his life. Mm-hmm. When I think of stories like that, and I know you and I have both encountered many, both men and women, mm-hmm. this began when they were young. This was a parenting moment gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I think as a, as a parent, this is a really important issue of, okay, how do I parent my child in this area? And one one thing, to be totally honest, and I don't want to pretend like I have all the answers, is I have two boys, for example, and parenting in this regard, with regards to pornography, is going to be challenging because it's because the the reality is there's a day coming when your kids are not going to be under your roof any longer, mm-hmm. right? And you're only going to be able to shelter them for so long. What does it look like to help parent with this, you know, serious issue of pornography? Mm-hmm. So, what are some things we want parents to know? Well, the first thing I uh, want parents to know is it's never too late to intervene. Okay. And so if you suspect it or if you haven't uh, put any monitoring on it or have not had this conversation yet and your kid is 17, it is still crucially important to let them know that you're in this with them. Okay. And typically you're going to get the response of, no, I've never seen anything online. And so I'm going to start there. The average age that a child is exposed to pornography is age six. And it's not because they're deviant. It's not because their little, you know, sexuality has gone up and increased, uh, you know, younger and younger. It's because they're engaging online, unmonitored, and they're coming across it. They've misspelled something. Let me give you an example. Now, our devices are monitored, so we know when these when these take place. And our kids are well aware that our devices are monitored. We're going to talk about that in another session. Don't be trying to lure your kids into a trap to see if they're, you know, looking at pornography online. Again, this is an open conversation. This isn't about entrapment. Mm-hmm. For ourselves, how this happened was our child was learning about species that had gone extinct at school. At school. Mm-hmm. How innocent is that? So, my son wanted to look up one of these extinct animals. He looked up a couple, and one of them was a booby. He didn't have any thought in his mind that he was going to be trying to look up naked images. Now, the device came back and said, sorry, we're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. you know. But then he realized, oh, I've looked up something I probably shouldn't have. So, then he came and talked to uh, my wife and I about it. But I thought, man, I mean, that's how easy it can start at a very young age. Well, and it's so young because pornography and the addiction, addiction centers in our mind. So the, the centers that create a sense of calm, but also a sense of rush through dopamine are there. They're all created when we're born. And so uh, when little children engage in pornography, it can feel very, very scary. But it also opens up a center that was not meant to be opened up until later puberty age. And it's starting to send these hormones, these dopamine, and it 
can open up an addiction to this engagement quite quickly, much more quickly uh, than than we think that it that it does. And so it's very important that if at all possible, uh, to to create these preventative measures through monitoring, conversation, through having, you know, and we'll talk about this more in the next session, you know, how to, how to do this, that's ideal. Because what we want to do is protect these little brains, protect these little uh, fight-fight-freeze situations, protect sexual identity and development for when it was meant to be explored, which is, was a different size brain with a different age and experience in life and with, uh, you know, alongside parents at first. I'm also very aware that I'm not just talking to, to parents, to people who aren't parenting yet, but are looking to, but also have young children. I'm also talking to parents who are in the thick of it, who they know their kid is addicted to pornography or at least very interested in it. And so what do you do then? When you have a young kid or a teenager and they go to their device and you are curious about, you know, what they're engaging with online, they might be in the swing of a pornography addiction and they need an adult's intervention to come in and to have these conversations. It, it would be ideal if it's the gender of the person who is uh, engaging in pornography. For example, if a son is engaging in pornography, it would be ideal if the father could engage with this conversation with their son. If the girl is engaging with pornography, it would be ideal if the mother could engage with her in this conversation. And that's the ideal. We always want to be at least the good enough parent and have this conversation no matter what. If you're a step parent, have the conversation. But we need to help our children step out of this addiction because they don't know that they're getting into it. They don't know how hard it is to get out of it. And so they need us to hold their hand and to open our eyes and allow them to come out. And I think it's also important just for parents to understand that it, this will not go away. And like all addictions, it will get worse and worse. And this can go to deviant pornography, for example, but this can also go to psychological and physiological effects, actually, yes. on the individual, where now that child into adulthood will have uh, difficulty with sex. Yeah. And if we can touch on dehumanizing again, engaging in pornography is a dehumanization of sexuality because they are engaging in their own sexuality, but very privately. And if we go back to the image that we, that we were talking about before, they are not in the room with another. They are not receiving the movements and the vulnerability and the facial expressions of the other. And so their anatomy is not being aroused by another person in an actual event. Their anatomy is being trained to be aroused by a screen in a very specific event. So then, when they want to enter into healthy sexual expression with another human being, it can often be very, very difficult to do that. And you can see this actually in marriages when one partner is addicted to pornography and they've been having you know, sexual intercourse for a long time, but that it actually impacts the quality or even the ability to engage in, in sex, never mind if you're a child, with an actual person because their whole body is being primed to engage in arousal in a very specific non-human way, a very individual, private way that needs an opportunity to unravel. Now, like I said, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of that subject. This is something that we're going to need to delve much deeper into in the, in the next two sessions. And 
and listen, parents, we want to encourage you uh, that as we talk about this subject and as we go deeper into parenting your, your children in a technological age, we want to give you very practical tips on how to do that. So in the next two sessions, we're going to get much more practical saying, okay, listen, you, you know, maybe you're just starting parenting and you want to put in some good practices. Uh, we're going to get into that. Or as Alicia mentioned, maybe you're already well into parenting and things have not gone the way you've wanted. We're going to get into those issues uh, as well. Uh, so, so come back, stay with us. We're going to get much more practical as we deal with these issues. But we wanted to just begin with this kind of 30,000 foot flyover. Here are some things that you need to be aware of, not to scare you, but really just to, to help you to become aware of. And as you begin to parent more proactively, I, I think you need to be aware mm-hmm. of what, what the dangers are. And again, this is not to scare you. This is to welcome you into a conversation. Our next two uh, dialogues are, again, going deeper, giving you very practical tips, you know, websites and what to avoid, how to start conversations. So I want to invite you to continue along with us because we've, we've talked about some of the bigger, scarier things, and we want to really empower you to do this very well. I uh, also want to empower you to reach out. That if you have been thinking about your child, they're in a tough place online, that you don't know how to set up something uh, more practical, you don't know how to enter into the conversation, you feel like if it's gone too far, to reach out to a counselor, to reach out to somebody who's done this before. It might be parents in the next step ahead of you, it might be a pastor, but just to encourage you to engage, to engage in the conversation with your partner, with your co-parent, with the step-parent, to start really paying attention to what this looks like online in your parenting. Well, thank you for joining us for the AC podcast. And next week, we're going to come back with even more to think about as we look at this topic of parenting your child in a technological age.